Let's take our Bibles now and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're looking at verses 9 through 15 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 984. And I've entitled today's message, Complete in Him. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll study the text together. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful Reformation Day you have given us. Lord, thank you for the the colors on the trees, for the cool breeze. Lord, thank you for the wonderful heritage that you have given us. Pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to our theological heritage. Pray that we would be faithful to your word. And help us now, Lord, as, as we study a portion of it together. Might you give us understanding and an eagerness to apply its truths to our lives. Lord, might you use this to increase our confidence in Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. So last week's message focused on a single verse. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In other words, don't allow your Christian minds to be carried off as plunder by non-Christian systems of thought. And now we're in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, and this text will answer the why. Why should we protect our Christian minds? The answer the verses will provide us with is the following. Because Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, and in Him we have everything we need. I'll say that again. Because Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, and in Him we have everything we need. Let's see this together from our text. Now, Paul begins by reminding us of the superiority of Christ's person. Verse 9, For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So commit yourself to Christ and Christ alone. Don't be tempted by the philosophies and empty deceits of others Because Christ isn't just any other man. He is different in degree, not just in kind from them. See, every other teacher, no matter how brilliant they may seem to us, is, in the end, just a man. Christ is different. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Romans 9.5, he is God over all, blessed forever. Colossians 2.3, he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, once during his earthly ministry, Christ even allowed some of his disciples to see his divine glory. It happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Matthew chapter 17 records the story. It says, quote, His face shone like the sun, 
and his clothes became white as light. That experience was never forgotten by Jesus' disciples. And so decades later, the Apostle Peter would write this in one of his books. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were with him on the holy mountain. So Christ is ontologically superior to all of his so-called rivals. Not just different in, in degree, but different in kind. All other religionists and philosophers are mere men. Christ is the God-man. One day we will all see this for ourselves. We will see what the Apostle John got to see in Revelation chapter 1. It says, He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is the one that we have put our faith in. One day we will see Christ in all of his glory for ourselves. One day, we will see this being renovate the heavens and the earth, undoing all of the effects of of sin and death. See, Christ is not just some teacher of morals. He is not some peddler of religious myths. He is full deity and perfect humanity together in the one person, better than all others. And if that isn't exciting enough, here's another thought that Paul provides us with. He says, verse 10, and you Christians have been filled in him. So you'll notice the play on words here from verse 9. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him. The King James Version says, we are complete in him. The New American Standard says we have been made complete in Christ. And so all the fullness of deity is present in Jesus Christ, and all of Christ flows to his disciples to give them all that they need, both for now and for eternity. Now, the Thanksgiving holiday is fast approaching. Think of being a Christian like being there on Thanksgiving. So an invitation is, ex- is extended and you accept it. And on Thanksgiving Day, you arrive at the house. You knock on the door and your host throws that door wide open for you and welcomes you inside. They take you to the honored seat at the table. And then you look at the table and you see the spread that has been laid for you. And you realize that everything you could ever desire is right there on the table. Like right there in the middle, there's this beautiful golden Thanksgiving turkey. And then over here, you've got the mashed potatoes and the the corn and the stuffing and the gravy. And then over here, you've got the green bean casserole and the, the cranberry sauce and everything you could possibly desire. There's another table over in the corner. And over here, there's the pumpkin pie and the apple pie, the chocolate pie, the best of them all. 
And it's all just lying there for you. Well, this is what it's like to be a Christian. Christ has extended the invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And by God's grace, we accepted his invitation. And we came, he welcomed us into his household, and then he put us in an honored seat. And now he has provided for us everything we could possibly ever desire and need. All that you need for for now and eternity, for life and godliness, for wisdom, it's all right there provided for you by Christ. He is the fullness of God in bodily form and you have been filled in Him. Every spiritual resource is at your disposal. And now in verses 11 through 15, the apostle elaborates on the provisions of Christ. And he focuses on three of them in particular. Number one, Christ has provided us with new hearts. With new hearts. That's verses 11 and 12. Now friends, a new heart is something that every single person desperately needs. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The great challenge facing every person is what to do about their internal self with all of its conflicts and temptations, with all of its struggles against sin. Do you realize that virtually every philosopher and religious teacher and and therapist out there exists to try to change the human heart, to give you joy and peace, to take away feelings of, of guilt and shame and regret. They exist to try to reconcile you with God. That's what they are all there for, but none of them are successful, save Christ. Because he is unique. He's not like any other person you've ever known. And Christ has provided every person that has trusted in him with a new heart. Look how the Apostle Paul describes that in verse 11. It says, And in him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, By putting off the body of the flesh, that is by the putting off of the sinful nature, by the circumcision of Christ. Here's what Paul means by all of that. Friends, millennia ago, when God established his covenant with the people of Israel, he ordered that every male Israelite should be circumcised as part of that covenant. That that act was the outward sign of their covenant with God. And God gave that sign to them for a couple of reasons. It would, first of all, physically mark off the Jews from all of the nations around them. But then secondly, it also served as a reminder of God's promise to be faithful from one generation to the next. And what better way to communicate that God would be faithful to them generation after generation than to put a mark on the organ of generation. So that's what God did. But of course, that physical mark did nothing to change the spiritual condition of the Israelites. Their bodies had been altered, but their hearts 
by and large, were still the same. And so the Israelites would often violate the terms of their covenant with God. They would run off after idols, and they would do things that that God found abominable. And the prophet Moses would grow so frustrated with them. Sometimes Moses would say things like this, from Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise your hearts and no longer be stubborn. In other words, he, he would say to the Israelites, you may have the physical mark of being in this covenant with God, but you still have no real relationship with God. Your heart is far from him. So Moses would plead with them and say, change your hearts, be right with God. Then all this other stuff will have meaning. Well, what the Apostle Paul is doing here now in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, is drawing on all of this history as he explains the nature of what we Christians have received. Paul is explaining that through Christ's work in their lives, these Gentile believers had received what people under that former covenant had not received, but which they desperately had needed a change of heart. They didn't have it by and large. But Paul says, you non-Israelites, you members of the church of Colossae who have trusted Christ, you have been given your new hearts. He has removed your heart of, of stone. He's given you a heart of flesh. How wonderfully privileged these Colossian believers were. Friends, I'm not exactly sure why the Apostle Paul decided to to frame all of this in these words. It was probably, though, that, that some of the false teachers infiltrating the church of Corinth were saying to this church that if they really wanted to be reconciled to God, they needed to adopt the rituals of the Israelites, right? Become like the Israelites and you can have a relationship with God. So Paul is responding and saying, no, you don't understand. That age passed with Christ, and besides that, it didn't mean anything anyway. It was a physical mark. It didn't change their hearts. You've got the better circumcision. You've got the circumcision of the heart. God has done surgery on your hearts to make you willing and able to believe in him. What a far better provision they had received than their predecessors Besides all of that, God had given them a new ritual as well, which was superior to that former ritual. Look at verse 12. It says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Christ from the dead. So Christ had changed the hearts of each one of these Colossian Christians. Removed the heart of stone, given them a heart of flesh. And the best evidence that they had experienced that heart change was that they were now eager to submit to the ordinance of baptism. In baptism, a person is plunged under a body of water, signifying that their old life is now dead and buried. And then they are raised up out of the water, which signifies that they have been raised up to a new life in Christ, complete with that new heart. And so this is what Paul says. 
You have received this great provision from Christ. He's given you a new heart, and that new heart has been expressed in your eagerness to be baptized, to be buried with him in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. See, through Christ, our souls have been healed, and it's all owing to his work in us. But then we notice there's a second provision that Christ has made for us. He's given us not just a clean heart, but also a clean slate. Look at verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him. Again, describing the massive spiritual change. But now he adds this at the end of the verse. Having forgiven us. All our trespasses. In Christ, we have a new heart, but we also have complete forgiveness of all sins. Now, friends, if you ever wronged another person and then had to ask for their forgiveness, it's a really hard thing to do. But if you have ever received their forgiveness, you know it is one of the most wonderful things in all the world. Forgiveness is one of the greatest gifts that anyone can receive. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again because it means a lot to me. I've told you that earlier this spring, my wife bought a trampoline for our kids to play on. But of course, I had to assemble the thing in the backyard. So I unboxed the thing, and I, I arranged all of the pieces, and I was trying to, to get that metal ring to lock together so that I could place the, um, the springed platform on top. But it just wasn't going together. Every time I would, I would put the last two pieces of the ring together, the two on the opposite end would pop out. This is extremely frustrating. And after wrestling with this for 20 or 30 minutes, I finally lost my temper and I just shouted in my frustration. Well, my two kids, ages five and four, were right there watching the whole time. And I was so angry in the moment that I just kept on working to, to get this thing put together. But then finally I got convicted about that. Um, I don't want my kids seeing me lose my temper, especially not over something as trivial as a trampoline. I had sinned against my kids. And so, finally, 10, 15 minutes later, when I was convicted enough, I went over to my kids and I, I got down on my knees to be eye level with them and, and I just told them, um, a few minutes ago when, when Daddy lost his temper, Daddy sinned. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Do you forgive me? And my kids said yes. They forgave me. And they gave me a, a big hug to let me know that it's okay. And my son said, it's okay, Daddy. Best feeling in the world for a dad. You know, to to have, have wronged my children, but then to have them willing to receive me back as, as their daddy. Wonderful feeling. Friends, how much better to know that we have forgiveness from our Heavenly Father. That we have, have 
sinned against him, not just with individual acts that are against his will, but our whole disposition has been, has been bent away from him and toward other things. But by his grace to be able to go to God and, and say, God, I see, I see what I've done. Will you forgive me? And for God to say, yes, it's all forgiven. Come back, be a part of my family. What a wonderful thing. Friends, every last one of us has a record of unfulfilled obligations to God. But in Christ, every bit of it, bit of it is taken away. In fact, look at verse 14. It says, He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You know that word translated canceled there? It's the same word that we find in Revelation 21.4, which takes us to the end of history, and it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the imagery here. That we, it's as if we have this, this great long document with all of our unfulfilled obligations to God. But God has taken this clean rag and he has just wiped the whole thing clean. Like not one sin left anymore. None of it held against us. This is the gift that God has given to each one of us. And the verse 14 says, He set our sins aside, nailing them to the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, friends, it's extremely costly to extend someone forgiveness. And in God's case, it costs him the life of his own son. It's been about 2,000 years since our son offered his life in exchange for us. All four gospel accounts give us the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was hung on a cross on a Friday morning about 9 a.m. After three hours of agony, the scriptures say that darkness hovered over the whole crucifixion scene. High noon, but it was dark. That was signaling to everyone around that the wrath of God was moving in, was about to come upon Christ. The wrath that our sins deserved. And then we have these awful words from Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment when the avalanche of all of our sins came down on Christ, crushing him. We hear his grief in those words. But he bore it to the fullest. Every last bit of what was owed to us because of our failure, he himself bore and then when it was all over, he offered those words of victory. It is finished. Your slates wiped clean, paid in full. Forgiveness is a costly thing to extend. This is what it cost Christ. And do you understand, my friends, that every religion on the planet exists to try to reconcile people with God? or with their gods. And it all involves the same thing, acts of self-sacrifice. 
So to placate our God or these gods, we will have to do this ritual and this ritual and this thing and that thing and that thing, a never-ending to-do list to try to placate the, the God or the gods above. But what makes Christ different? What makes Christianity different? It's that Christ did it all for us. He went to the cross. He took away our sins. He had them nailed with him to the planks of wood. Christianity is separated from all of the religions of the world by these two simple words, N-E. In every other religion, it's do something to placate God. In Christianity, it's done. The work is done for you. Just receive the gift. We who have come to Christ in repentance and faith have received it, and the result has been clean consciences with God, confidence in our state before God, no fear of God any longer, no fear of death, no more striving to try to justify ourselves before God. He has done these things for us. And it's all come to us from Christ. These are the provisions that Christ has made for us. He's given us our new hearts, something no religion could accomplish. He's given us a clean slate, something no religion could ever accomplish. And then finally, in verse 15, we see he's also given us a complete victory. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's a description of the devil and his hosts. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, Christ was confronted by the forces of hell throughout his earthly ministry. The devil himself tempted Christ to sin at the very outset of his ministry there in the wilderness. Demons took possession of people around Christ and harassed him. At the end of Christ's public ministry, the devil succeeded in prompting Judas to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. You know, it must have seemed like a great victory to the devil as he looked at the Son of God hanging on that cross, apparently helpless to do anything about it. Little did he know that that cross was part of God's eternal plan to bring about our salvation. See, through his stripes, we were going to be healed. And on the third day after Christ's death, on a Sunday morning, he proved his victory by rising from the grave. He showed his victory over death, sin, hell, the devil, and all of his hosts. And all who are united to Christ by faith share in that great victory so that nothing can now oppose us and we need fear no thing. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Christ has secured for us. And so, my friends, why should you not allow your Christian mind to be taken captive 
by non-Christian systems of thought? Well, it's because in Christ you have all you need. He is an all-sufficient Savior. What can the philosophers and religious gurus of this world offer you that you don't already have in Christ? Do they promise you a fresh start? Well, you have that in Christ. Do they promise you spiritual enlightenment? You have that in Christ. Do they promise a new sense of connection to to God, the world, or to other people? You have that in Christ. Do they promise you sinless perfection? You have that in Christ. Now, positionally, and then, practically. Do they promise you love and acceptance? Well, you have that in Christ. Do they promise you freedom from the power of the devil and his hosts? You have that in Christ. There is nothing that you lack when you have Christ. And besides all of that, the promises from the others are empty. They can't deliver on any of it. They can help you to overcome a bad habit, turn over a new leaf, maybe relieve some of those inner feelings of angst, but they can't change you fundamentally from the inside out. Christ can do that. He has done it if you're a Christian, and He invites you to experience it if you're not. So will you not be confident in Christ? Will you see that you are complete in Him? No supplemental material needed when you know Christ. My friends, let's bow in a word of prayer now. Thank you for this morning you've given to us, Lord, to consider a portion of your word. Last week, through the Apostle Paul, you warned us not to let our minds be taken captive by other philosophers, other religious teachers, but to remain fixed to you. And now you've shown us why. It's because in your Son, we have been provided with all that we could ever need or desire. We are complete in Him. To add to him would only be to to diminish who he is and what he has done. It would be to work against the spiritual renewal that you are bringing about in our lives. So, Lord, help us to be confident in your Son. Convince us, Lord, if we're not already, that he is full deity and perfect humanity, united in one person. Your eternal Son, come to earth to make atonement for us. And that through Him, we have new hearts, clean slates, and everything necessary for now and eternity. Lord, work in the hearts of those who may not know you here. Lord, draw them to yourself in faith, and don't let them be shy about that. Let them reach out to Christian friends around them, to to myself after the service. Make that public. Lord, grant them that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.